Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here in a wet and sultry Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller in south-east London, where a glaring winter sun is blazing through the thinning trees. This, officially, according to the statisticians, is a 100th recorded edition, and therefore it's a special thrill to have as our guest today Sir Geoffrey Boycott, who makes something of a speciality of uh, 100th occasions, and with him is his new batting partner, John Houghton, who is, um, has collaborated with him on a remarkable new book, which we're going to talk about later. But first of all, uh, Geoffrey and John, welcome to the podcast. Morning. Morning. Morning, Geoffrey. It's uh, such a pleasure to meet you. John, you've been on this show before. Yes. Um, it's such an honour to have uh, Sir Geoffrey Boycott, uh, because he's been part of all of our lives since I was I became conscious of cricket in 1965 uh, and then he after he, your magnificent career which everybody knows about uh, Jeffrey you then became a wonderful commentator on the game you've meant an enormous amount to me in my cricket loving life and, and all of our listeners too so it's such a pleasure very much is. It's a um, great honour to be with you today, Geoffrey. And um, it's a remarkable book that we're celebrating. First, Peter, I think you wanted to ask something about um, Geoffrey's recent um, comments on the ECB. Yes, I read your... Uh, you came in off your long run this week in the Daily Telegraph, and I found myself agreeing with every word as you pummeled the, the corporate suits of the ECB... Um, you didn't let you let a few few bouncers fly around the years, quite rightly so, of uh, Sir Andrew Strauss, your fellow cricketing knight. And basically, you just you described. I think this is fair, and it's but we need to hear your voice because too many people are afraid to speak out what the ECB is doing to our uh, our national game. Well, talk is cheap. I hear them say it so often. Different people, unnamed people, people who speak for the ECB. Even the chief executive, who's recently just uh, gone, but they all talk about, oh, test cricket's so important. Yet they always put money first and the one-dayers, more and more one-dayers. And that's nonsense. I mean, I, I judge people by what they do, not what they say. Saying is easy. It's what you do. And we've done very little to help test match cricket in the many, many years since I finished. Uh, we talk a good game. And uh, you go, you talk about tours. When I went uh, in the early days with tours, we had three or four four-day matches abroad. So everybody in the team, the squad, not the team, the 16 squad could have a bowl, a bat, few times, get into form so that when the first test came around, everybody had had a great opportunity to get into form. Now they go out there and they have one match and they have a little knockabout between themselves. Uh, which is rubbish. It's not competitive. And then there are hardly any matches between test matches. Once the test matches start, you know, they follow on so quickly so that they can get them finished and then they can have lots of nonsensical one-dayers at the end to make money. If you really believe test cricket is the pinnacle, the best, you know, that we all talk about, we're all judged by as players, 
then where are the matches in between tests? So the guys who out of form can get in form. Where are the reserves have got an opportunity to find some form or keep their form? There's no proper planning. It's all about one-day cricket. It's like in England. We have three one-day competitions. Test cricket, you know, it's kind of, it's there, it makes money. And the one thing that makes test cricket is county cricket. The quality of player coming through and the quality of the cricket we play produces a quality cricketer for England. And county cricket has gone down drastically in the last 20, 25 years. I've watched some of it this year. It's, it's pretty poor, actually. And that's not surprising. Our best test match cricketers hardly ever play. They play like Joe Root played for Yorkshire, two warm-up matches in April or so, early May. Once he got a bit of form, off he went to England. We never saw him again. You know, Yorkshire got relegated. We'd never seen him or Johnny Bates still. And so you've spent money, time, effort by coaches, everybody at the club, helping to make these players, helping to create them as quality England players. And all you get for it is some money. The ECB give you some money back because uh, they're playing for England and not you. And they think that's all right. Well, how is it all right when Yorkshire get relegated? What about the membership, the people that want to watch Yorkshire? When I was a boy, I wanted to go watch Fred Truman or Len Hutton. What about kids today? The fathers want to take them to watch Joe Root back, Johnny Bester, but they're never there. So the standard of cricket has gone down because the best players are not playing. There's so much one-day cricket all over the place. It fills the calendar. And we, in the last few years, we've had county cricket subjugated, shoved to the beginning of the season, earlier and earlier in April, when the pitchers seem all over the place, spinners can't bowl, after time, batsmen are hunting for the ball. They're not batting. They're trying to survive as the ball zips all over the place in early, early mid-April, late April. And that's nonsense. And then as an afterthought, to stick a few games in at the end of the season when everybody's thinking, well, oh, well, it doesn't matter. It's not that important. So if it's important, give it eminence in the best period of the summer. But no, what do they give the best periods of the summer? The one-dayers. So talk is cheap. And when I, when I see Andrew Strauss saying that we reduce county cricket because it doesn't make any money, basically, that's what the suits have been saying for years. They want to get reduced county cricket totally. But if you've no county cricket of any standard, how are you going to make test players who, who play crash bag wallop cricket? You've only to look at that kid Zach Crawley playing. He's got immense shot playing talent, beautiful timing. He doesn't know how to start an innings against the new ball. He doesn't know how. And he, he, he's, he's, he's not bereft of talent. He's got some super talent. If the ball doesn't move and it's flat, he'll get runs. As soon as it moves, it doesn't have the defensive technique. It doesn't have how to build an innings. You can only learn that by playing county cricket. That a county cricket of quality, not just any county county cricket of quality where the best players are playing. Look, I could tell you more, but I mean, I just think, and Andrew, Andrew is not independent. It's not like you've asked for an independent inquiry. Andrew works for the ECB, gets paid mm. by the ECB. <laughs> He works for Sky TV as well. So he's not going to bite the hand that feeds him. He's not going to tell him that, you know, country, you know, they've got it all wrong, is he? 
I must say, Geoffrey, listening to you, apart from agreeing with every word and the honesty and forthrightness and love of the game which you show, I miss hearing your voice on Test Match Special. That's when you were so forthright. But, but Richard, we're going to have to move on, aren't we? Because well, uh, well, we must we must move yeah. on. We must talk about the um, book uh, that Geoffrey that you produced with Sean. It's a remarkable partnership. Uh, it's something much, much more than a conventional um, autobiography, a conventional ghosted autobiography, or even a conventional approved biography. To quote a football phrase, it's a book of two halves. Um, half of it's written in your voice, Geoffrey, and in I notice in upright type uh, in the first person. Half of it's written in John's voice, in the second person as you and in italics. Would you like to just tell listeners what your half is about? Well, it's all mine. I'll tell you. <laughs> I wrote about 110,000 words. And I was in South Africa when there was the lockdown. There were no flights flying and I was stuck there, which is not part of the world. But actually, in my house on a golf course, a Jack Nicholas golf course, and you couldn't go out, you couldn't play golf. You weren't allowed to go out except for shopping. So I walked around the house about 25 times, my house and swimming pool, and that was about a mile. But the rest of the time, what the hell am I going to do with myself all day sat in the house? A bit of television? Yeah, but you can't watch that all day. So it was my wife that said, why don't you start writing? Tell some of the stories, the incidents, the things, the anecdotes, the things that happened here. I, I said, yeah, but where do I start? And, that, and she encouraged me to just sit down and write. And I started writing and I got into it. And then I got wisdom out and you check your facts. I made 76 there. No, you didn't. You made 72. And I, I just started and all the, uh, the things that happened to me. And, and when we came across it by pure chance, that make it around my 108 test matches. And I completed this because I was there weeks. I didn't get back to the end of May. And then I sent it to one or two publishers and, what have you, and the book situation is down, you know, they're all not been selling books, <laughs> they're all frightened to publish because, you know, they've been stuck, no money coming in. And it was Matt Thacker who said, I like it, but I'd like to do it a different way. I'm not going to take credit for it, it was Matt. At the, the, and he said, I want to get a friend of mine this number two batsman, John Hutton, because <laughs> he's definitely not going to be one number one if he's batting with me. And he said, I want to just rearrange it because if he, if he gives me any trouble, I'll run the bugger out. <laughs> so he said, right, and I want to just try it and take a chapter. And this John Hutton, who the hell he was, wrote it. It was absolute rubbish. <laughs> Absolute tripe. <laughs> he had me seen he by gum lad as if I lived up in the hills like a farmer. So I got on the phone to him and gave him the bollocking. I said, I don't talk like that. So let's have a conversation. All you've done is read about me and heard about me, you know, stories galore, half for true and half for untrue. They're just better with my name on them. Now talk. So we had a couple of conversations. Then he rewrote it, and ah, then it was different. And what I always do, I give things to my wife, Rachel. She grew up where the father was uh, in love with cricket. He umpired a lot, went to the Hawks. He was a member of them. It's a big club that plays in Yorkshire, 
lot of matches and she grew up scoring. She understood cricket a bit. And she's my barometer like a member of the public. People who buy books, people who are interested in me, I love cricket. They play cricket. They're not idiots. They know about it a bit. And she knows about it a bit. And she reads things from me like a member of the public. And I said, what do you think? She said, I like it. I said, really? And to be honest, I wasn't thrilled. No, no disrespect to John's writing, he'd done it good, but I just, it was new, it was different. Like me, he'd taken some of me, some of stuff I've written, kept that, and then he wrote something himself, like my mind, what was going on in my head. And it was, I read it a few times and kept reading it, and it started to grow on me, but I was still wasn't sure because there are no books out there like that. And in the end, I said, she said, it'll be fine. So I took a punt. I said, Matt, the publisher, let's go. And then he did write his bit, his number two bit. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, Jeffrey, it really works. I, I think I, I couldn't put it down. I, I think it's a masterpiece. One of the best cricket books I've ever read. Uh, and it's because of this very adventurous way you've said about it. But what comes out of it is the your loneliness, your personality, your long, long struggle to win gets you inside the head of a test cricketer. I think Correct. this is a book that will be read in a hundred years' time. So congratulations on both to both of you. It always works, you know, with my partner when I'm batting. If when I say come one, they run. <laughs> <laughs> It's only fair, Jeffrey. I think to bring in uh, your your number two batsman. Um, uh, you've taken the first ball, the first five balls of the over, but I think we should. Yeah, we'll let, let him have a ball. Let him have, let him have one, and, and we, I'm sure you won't let him take a single to get the to get the next over. But John, just just to tell us what uh, you brought to the book uh, specifically in the um, in the italicised passages. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean. I suppose the first thing to say is, yeah, Jeffrey's absolutely right. He did, he had written a hundred thousand word plus diary, and I was when I heard Matt had a copy of it, I was desperate to read it because, kind of like Peter was saying earlier, Jeffrey was this huge sort of cricketing figure. My first day of Test cricket was as a little kid in 1976, second day of the uh, fifth Test against West Indies, and boycott kind of loomed over English cricket at that time because it was at the time of his uh, absence from test cricket he'd come back the following summer in 77 when I was really then gripped by the game and and, and Jeffrey was my dad's favorite player and he always say to me watch boycott son watch what he does which I had Jeff boycott's book for young cricketers and I'd you know read all of that and, and so he was this huge figure and his voice kind of permeates the game in many ways um, as a broadcaster and before that as a player. Um, and, and so I was desperate to read the diary and I read the diary and it had the one thing that if you're going to be a writer, you need, and that's voice. It doesn't matter what the actual yeah. writing's like. And, and, you know, this was in diary form and Jeffrey will tell you, he's not a, a writer per se, but it had that yeah. voice. It was, it couldn't have been by anybody else. And it was magnificent. I mean, his memory, as you can tell, is extraordinary. And he will remember in granular detail mm -hmm. things about innings that he's probably never said before. 
So I thought it was this extraordinary material. And I just had this response in my head, this, this, this idea that you could, you know, that almost spoke back to him. Those first lines in the book that I write, which is you hear it on the radio, which is about him being selected for England for the first time mm. and how players would hear, you know, you wouldn't hear from the selectors or anything like that. You had to wait yeah. for the team to come on the news, which seems extraordinary these days, but you'd be gathered around a radio. God, is my name in the team, you know? So I kind of did a bit of that. And as Jeffrey said, he he didn't like it. And actually, although he was, you know, he was sort of very funny there, he he made some really brilliant points about that first thing I did. And it it what I knew was the public image of Jeffrey Boycott, and that's what I was writing. But that's not the real him, you know, as you can tell probably from speaking to him here. He's quite different to that. You know, he's funny, he's he, he's got this extraordinary memory. He's, you know, I I, I don't know, he will remember things in a way that only the person that experienced them could tell you about. And that's what I wanted to kind of drive into. And the, the other thing I didn't realise, which is probably where I was going wrong, was that sort of original voice that I did that was quite, you know, people have described it, and rightly so, it's a bit like The Damned United, which is that book about Brian Clough, which is a novel, but it uses third-person sections. And I didn't realise, I knew Jeffrey was friends with Brian Clough, but I didn't realise how close friends they were until... Jeffrey spoke a bit about him and he said this brilliant thing about the damned united Jeffrey said to me he said it's a brilliant novel but it's nothing like Brian and I thought here's someone who not only understands writing and what the writer was trying to achieve but matches it against real life and tells you actually what it was really like and I think then I I really thought I'm just going to listen to what he says and try and absorb as much as, as, as I can and get that down on the page but the method I stuck with the method of, you know, this the second person voice, which is sort of half of Jeffrey talking to himself and sort of half of painting what was going on around him, things he didn't say in the diary about what was happening at Yorkshire, what might have been happening in his family with when his mum became ill, or, or any of those things, those kind of personal things that really affect you as a as an individual as well as a cricketer. And I think that's where that voice came from, really. Well, that's um Jeffrey, when you finally got John's version to your satisfaction, was there anything that you sort of discovered about yourself uh, that you hadn't really thought about before, being seen so intimately through the eyes of another person? Was there any any surprise in his narrative for you? Yes, I was surprised. I didn't write it, as some authors say, or it was cathartic, or I was trying to get something out there. I just wrote it. I mean, I, I told you why I wrote it, because I was stuck in South Africa, in Cape Town, in the lockdown. I mean, there was no other reason. I mean, I wasn't trying to be clever or anything. And I told, I just told things. And so when he started writing about how I was thinking, yeah, it was interesting. It was my, it, it's very difficult for someone to see themselves. That's what you're asking me. And that's yeah. why I use Rachel as a barometer. I think we'll admit the people who know a man best is the woman who lives with him, sleeps with him. It's a fact. Look at the police. Every time there's a crime, they talk to the wife, the girlfriend, because they know best. And I think anybody who knows me as well as anybody in the world is Rachel and my daughter, Emma. If you want to know anything about me, if you want to find me in the world, get my daughter, get my wife. It's as simple as that. And I I tend to not like it when she tells me something I don't like, <laughs> which is, well, I like the I like what he's written. She said, I think it's you. 
And I didn't, but I don't like it, but I go away and think about it. And I come back a bit like Brian Clough when he was always positive and never changed his mind. And Brian Moore, the interviewer, says, what happens when one of the players disagrees with you? He says, well, we sit down, we have a discussion for 20 minutes and then agree I was right in the first place. <laughs> and, and that's me with my wife. I go away and I'm bloody annoyed and not happy because she doesn't agree with me. Then I come back and she was right in the first place, which is quite annoying. <laughs> So I'm glad we did it. I'm really glad. I mean, it's come out great. No, no, he's doing a good job. He's a bit like, he's a great number two. He's a bit, you're right, you're right. At the end of an over, you know, I count to, I count to six and I also get a single off the fifth ball. And he's just the man for that to leave one ball for him at the end of an over. He's like that. Well, I once played with David, well, many times with David Best, who I loved him. Johnny's dad, big friend of mine. Very big friends with my wife, Rachel. Both of them like each other a lot. Anyhow, big friend of mine. And we bat him once at Bradford, and I've got quite a lot of runs. And he comes in about number seven, you see, and a big crowd all on top of you, small ground at Bradford. And uh, I'm batting away, concentrating, focusing on my game as usual. And then all of a sudden, this guy's running up to bowl, and the umpire goes, what, 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 stop, stop, what, what? And he looks around, and there's David Bairstow, the non-striker's end, pads on, gloves on, the bat's by him, and he's down in the starter's position, a sprinter. <laughs> he said, what are you doing? What are you doing? He says, it's fifth bloody ball, isn't it? I've been in about eight overs. I've had <laughs> John, um, back to you, uh, games number two. To an extraordinary extent, your book conveys, you know, you manage to project yourself into Jeff's great innings. It's almost, the reader almost feels that in your passages, as much as um, as his, that you're actually playing the innings. Just wondered what, you're a cricketer yourself. Have you seen him, Bart? No, <laughs> as a matter of fact, I have on the, on the author's cricket team. No, I was going to say, you're not quite batting. that. Jeffrey said all about my innings, don't worry. Yeah. Not in, I have actually, um, but uh, not at that stratospheric level. But I just wondered, John, what was it like for you actually briefly being Jeffrey Boycott in those moments? Well, it, it, what I should say is that, I mean, that was kind of the part part of it where I, I was really interested in, as, as, a, as you say, as an amateur cricketer, was that I remember uh, we have one, as Jeffrey said, he used to phone me up and put me straight on various things. But one, I think it was like a Sunday morning or something, he rang we had this sort of hour long conversation about batting. And while he was speaking, I just thought I'm getting a kind of masterclass here that mm. is beyond money, really, because we spoke about his preparation. What would he do on the way? More, more than that, you know, the, the bits in the in the book, one of the things I always, well, on the rare occasion I do speak to cricketers, I always ask them, do you dream about cricket? Because most of them do. And most of them have that same anxiety dream that we all have, which is, you can't get your pads on or you're, you know, you've left your kit in the car or you're, you know, it's just cricket is a great kind of vehicle for that sort of anxiety. And I asked Jeffrey that and he said, no, I never dream about cricket. And I thought, God, that's like extraordinary. So that was a sort of motif in the book, but also this from the second he woke up to the second he got to the ground and got his gear on, 
you know, what what was going through his mind? What would he do to get himself in the in the place where he was ready to bat? So it was kind of driving into that really, which got me into it. And they, also, he I mean, I remember he said um, when he went in, and I, I looked at the little bits of video I could find actually, which was true. He'd always want to get out there quickly, so the opposition knew he was ready. So he'd be out there, he'd walk out there quickly, right behind them, as the fielding team took this, took this, took the field. He'd go right behind them just because he wanted them to know that he was he was ready to play. So it's little things like that I think that I really thought as a writer you can kind of do something with that because the sort of personal detail that you can't get unless that person actually tells you that that's what they were thinking about and what they were going through and the other thing I, I suppose is the difference between professionals and um, amateurs apart from the, the talent levels and the skill levels is the mindset and you can't really appreciate as an amateur what the pressure is like when you're batting for your livelihood you know it's bad enough when you fail on a Sunday afternoon and you've got to wait till the next Sunday to have another innings. You know, you feel terrible enough then, but you can't imagine what it's like when it's your livelihood. And I think to get into that sort of combat that went on in his head when he's facing these great bowlers, but still driving himself on and still demanding of himself, yeah, I might have got some runs in the test match, but tomorrow I'm opening for Yorkshire and I'm going to play exactly the same way. And I'm going to put in exactly the same amount of effort and exactly the same amount of, of professionalism into the innings. Because in the end, batting, I think, well, he'll tell you, but it meant so much to him. And my sort of theory as to why he remembers it so clearly is that it was kind of going so deeply inside him. He was internalising it so much because it meant so much to him. And so I think it's a sort of extraordinary opportunity as someone, you know, is his number two to be able to tap into that, really. I was always passionate from an early age. And I think passion is so important to anybody. Whatever you do, if you've got passion for it, boy or girl, man or woman, passion for it, bloody hill climbing or whatever, have passion. That's the number one thing about anything. And I remember, listen, when you talk about pressure, I had to give up my job in the civil service, safe, secure job. And they told me that, yeah, they'd give me time off without pay to see if I were any good at Yorkshire. I got I got chance to play one or two Yorkshire matches in 63. Then when I asked for leave without pay, special leave without pay, they said no. So I had two choices, stay in the civil service or leave. And once you leave, you can never go back. I signed the official secrets act on the Friday. Not that I had any, but I had to sign it. <laughs> I, I, I had to sign it. I mean, all I worked on were uh, injury benefit, disabled benefit, sickness, maternity benefit. I don't think there were any bloody special things about that. There were no spies around wanting to know about that. But I had to sign the official secrets act. I went to Bramall Lane next day at Sheffield to play for Yorkshire. And I think I got an eight pound match fee. I was on no salary, it was just a match. So I had to play well to get picked for the next match and the one after. Else I had no job, no money coming in. And I remember as clear as anything, Ozzy Wheatley, big blonde bombshell, good looking lad, ball from the pavilion end, and got me caught by Presby at second slip for naught. I was really thrilled that Saturday night going home. No play on Sunday. I'm on a pair on Monday. And if I get a pair, I might not get picked and any more money or any more job. Now, that's pressure. It certainly is. How did you get on in the second innings, Jeffrey? I'm, I'm definitely any of us hanging on in here. Fortunately, we didn't bat. We won the match by an innings. <laughs> <laughs> I told him later, I got to know, I said, I loved him and his wife and his younger son at the time, years later. 
when he wasn't playing, he was elected. I said, I was glad you didn't bloody bowl at me second innings. <laughs> Jeffrey, the one batsman you... I mean, you're, there is a sort of opening batsman's club. There are batsmen you cannot imagine not being an opener. You're one of them. The other one, absolutely, is Hanif Muhammad, who you must have known and yeah. you certainly played yeah. against. Did you you see what I mean about he was so yeah. serious about the game and became a sort of god for early, you know, that's not the right word, but the absolute national embodiment of Pakistan cricket yeah. for 20 years? Yes. Oh, it was finishing when I was starting, though, unfortunately. So I think I, 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 think I played one match for England. I'll look it up. I'm pretty sure. But I mean, I was 67, the first test 67. match. Mm. Yeah, you would. You were on the other side, and he played that great century. That's right, and I think it was one Test match because I got injured and I missed a couple. And uh, I met him years later because I did. I not only played in Pakistan, I did a lot of commentating. I did a lot of commentating in Pakistan. Good friends there, and I met him. Yeah, he's a tiny little man, and and yes, you get figures like that. You are. I mean, one of my best friends is Sonny Gavaska and mm. for a while he was iconic before Tendulkar came he was exactly the same the iconic batsman of India great player and I mean I use the word properly great G-R-E-A-T that does apply to him great opening batsman great sense of humour good friend commentated a lot with him and he was an icon just the same like Imran Khan you get these people Imi I knew well and uh, yeah, he bowled me out at Oxford. The only place I'd never made 100 was Oxford when it was a first-class county. Him, he bowled me out for 80 of a big in-swing, a bowling fast. Now, he was a fantastic, fantastic specimen and cricketer he was. Mm. So, yes, I met icons like that. Sobers was the biggest icon. Sobers was mm, the best batsman I've ever seen. Fractionally... If I had to judge between him and Viv, yes, just above. And Viv was outstanding. But Sobers was, I got to play with him once. Once. I suppose I could put him in my greatest side of all time, but I can't. It wasn't first class. Yorkshire toured Bermuda. And Bermuda were part of West Indies cricket. Not far away. And he was, he was the biggest cricketer in the world. And he was invited to play for us. And I think Yorkshire played against Somerset. Yeah, there's a place called Somerset in Bermuda, their cricket club. And we played with matting on concrete. You try that when the matting's pulled tight, it's like lightning quick. <laughs> and we were about 20 odd for four, Yorkshire. And I borrowed one of his long handled bats to get my hands high on the handle so I didn't get a broken finger because I was going home in a few weeks to go to South Africa on my first tour for him with MCC and he came in about number six and this ball was flying through and after a few bounces he said to the captain no more of these cut it out wow I thought so at the end of the over I said what about me he said to the captain and him too no more so we both got under it <laughs> I said, bat, I'd like to bat with you more often. <laughs> you look it up, Somerset Cricket Club, 1964. I said, I'd like to bat with you more often. Sobers was a sort of absolute, um, sort of moral opposite of you in many ways, wasn't he? He was, 
you, you could, the cut, although you're, you're playing enormous praise to him, he was in, in the way he said about the game and the way he played it, in the way he remembered it. Even he was a complete mirror image of you in the in the sense of opposite. Um, I see what you're driving at, but I'm not totally sure he was. He was very professional. I mean, people tend to think that look, he's just blessed with talent, so he could just turn up on a match and make a hundred without practicing. Well, that's a load of bollocks. Um, I played in West Indies in 1974. I done three major tours. We're in Trinidad, hot as hell, humid, very tiring. So everybody practiced in the morning as early as they could to get away from the most heat. And then you go and rest in your room. And I would go back for nets in the afternoon. One of the few. Occasionally somebody would go with me, but I always went and got local bowlers as the sun's beginning to go down, it's getting cooler. And who would be always there one afternoon was sober, on his own, doing like me, practicing. And I thought, yeah, yeah. He hadn't been in great nick. He's coming to the end of his career, so he was practicing. And, you know, he did have natural gifted talent. Absolutely. Wonderful. Me, many people say I made mine. I had talent, but I, I was like more like a Gary player. I worked at it. The more I practiced, the luckier I got. And I, I would take that as fairly observant of people to say, yes, I was more like um, him than, uh, say, a Tiger Woods. But he was very professional in everything he did as a wonderful human being as well. I liked him. Good man. I'm really top man. I don't ever seen him do anything at cricket on the field or about cricket that was bad for the game. Hmm. Talking of um, great, great sides that you played with and against, um, Jeffrey, I was very interested and uh, very much agree with your decision to put in your two matches against the rest of the world in, in 1970. Oh, um, what, a, what a team that was. Jesus. Mm. What? Mike Proctor coming in about number eight. He got <laughs> six centuries on the trot, didn't he? It's the most ever in first-class cricket. Mm. Oh, and he's coming in number eight. And a pretty pretty handy bowling attack, too. Yeah. Oh, he's a wonderful bowler. I mean, Mike was a terrific cricketer. Uh, I played against, I think, him. I think Vincent van der Bale, because he didn't really play any official test matches, was one of the great bowlers. He'd have been like Joel Garner. Very difficult to hit. Tall man, moved the ball, but yeah, extra bounce. Just gave you nothing to hit. And Graham Pollock, the batsman. What a fantastic cricket. I knew Graham quite well. Years later, not when I played, but years later when I was going to South Africa on holiday, my friend Peter Cook in Joburg, Peter went to school with Graham. So Graham used to come down in the evenings for a glass of wine. He lived nearby and I got to know him well. But what a player he was, though he had some outstandingly world-class players. Now that was, uh, and, and England played really well in that series. I mean, Ray Illingworth captained that team. Actually. Yes, very good. Well, that's the reason he got the captaincy to Australia when many thought and hoped uh, Colin Cowdery would get it. Because uh, Colin had uh, done it, his Achilles tendon. They looked around for a captain. Raymond had just gone to Leicester from Yorkshire, never done much captaincy, but they gave him the job. And he was brilliant at it because. England had a goodish side, but I mean, that rest of the world side was so outstanding. And 
And they did well. They won one test. Uh, they nearly won two. They nearly won two others. I know nearly doesn't count, but when you're playing a, a great side like that and, and they've more ability than you, to get that close, I think the selectors took all that into consideration and, uh, and made him captain for the tour because they saw it, it was an outstanding captain. was outstanding. It's very fascinating uh, reading. I mean, one of the many fascinations of your book actually is your evaluations of all the captains you know obviously you didn't for some you didn't rate Mike Dennis others you were <laughs> others you absolutely no don't rate. get me on with that I can't swear on this <laughs> podcast <laughs> John did you have, let's bring in John briefly did you have to tone, did you have to tone down any passages or well, no I, I mean I think what yeah what Jeffrey was saying about passion it, you can tell it's still there and when he does speak about Mike Dennis um, yeah, the, that anger is still there. And uh, so it's very easy to tap into, very easy to get down on the page because he still feels it. And I, I, I completely get that. I you know, really get that. And it, it's, yeah, to look into, to have a window into an era of cricket that goes from 1960, well, 64 was the first test, but he was sort of talking a little bit about 62 and 63, right the way up to the end of his test career and a little bit beyond. I mean, the end of the book mentions what happened briefly after uh, after he finished playing test cricket. I mean, you've got an era of, of, of cricket there that, uh, you know, first-hand recollections of the type you won't, just won't get anywhere else. So no, it was amazing. It was amazing. And even, yeah, you talk about Jon Snow and people. I remember, Jeffrey, you'll remember the one sort of, I think, point in the book where you really wanted to go away and find out what happened was the incident with Jon Snow at Hove when he broke your hand. Yes. Uh, and uh, I, I think I said something like I'd read somewhere that Jon Snow came round the wicket to. Uh, you did. To, and yeah. I, think, I don't remember that. Yeah, he said he, he didn't remember. It. So uh, you know, he went off and found out about that, and it was sort of really interesting. Even that, that you still wanted to recall exactly what had happened. Yeah, well, I know he bowled me a nip backer, and yeah. uh, it, it nipped back. He, he had a great ability. Oh, he was talented, was John. And it bounced as it does at home because it's one of the quicker pitches. What Worcester was another. I know it's got slower now, but uh, you know, and, and, and he loved coming down the hill. That, that's all fast bowlers like to bowl downhill a bit. And uh, it was quick, but I, I was pretty good too. But it <laughs> nipped back the ball and it hit me on the top hand. And it didn't hit me on the what your normal finger, it hit me on the inside of the glove of the hand. I don't know, mm. side of the hand where there's no padding. And that's why it broke uh, broke my hand just below the little finger. And then I had to have a plaster cast on, go up to the hospital, come back with a plaster half cast. And I'm sat upstairs watching the game then, Yorkshire batting. And Snowy uh, come in. Remember, we played together for it with, with England. He said, I told you I'd get you when you come to home. I said, yeah, but you didn't get me out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but the sort of, you know, the caveat, the, the interesting part of that, to me was also that uh, Illingworth would ask Jeffrey when they were playing for England to stand at mid on and wind John Snow up yep. when he was bowling. And, you know, you, you almost, Jeffrey, you sort of read the whirlwind there at Hove, didn't you? Because he had a yeah. summer's worth of being, <laughs> well, you know, wound up by you. I got skin, you see. I, I was the best player and he was the best fast bowler. And uh, John, I, people often said he was lazy. I don't agree with that. I think that was unfair. He was a very talented bowler, but he was a very intelligent person. And 
having bowled brought up at Hove on a fast pitch, where he could get the ball through quick and bouncy like all fast bowlers want to do, when he got to some places where there were slower pitches, the ball came off softly. He thought, I'm banging my head against a brick wall here trying to bowl fast because it doesn't come off fast. And he, I wouldn't say lolloping, but he bowled within himself to the fast medium. And like when he came to Bradford once to play Yorkshire and he ran in and he bounced me and I hit it in, over mid-wicket into the stand for six. And I said to him, this ain't hove. And when he got pitches like that, he thought it was a waste of his energy to try and run in as fast as he could. Other people <laughs> disagreed with him because when you're fast, when you've got an ability to bowl with real, real pace, you are the ace in the pack. You can get through people with sheer pace that other people can't. And you couldn't always get through to John with that. And Raymond Illingworth said to him, when I want you to bowl, I'll give you plenty of time to get loose, do your exercises, but I want you to bowl fast. Only three or four overs. I won't bowl your long spells, but I want short, fast spells. Make it count. You can get wickets. And if you don't get wickets, you'll help get wickets at the other end. Or some batsmen are trying to get away from you. John didn't totally agree with that. <laughs> so Raymond would say when he was lolloping in, on a test match pitch, which, you know, middle of the day, wasn't fast, balls a bit old. It's a go and stand at mid-off. Okay. I said, are you going to keep on bowling like that? I wish I were batting. Jesus, that'd be an easy hundred. Oh, God. I said, I said, uh, you've only bowled four balls. I've got eight off the over already. You ball, there'll be a few words there, won't there? Oh, Christ. I get under his skin. And at the end of the over, he said to, he said to Raven, his captain, captain, can you, can you move fiery from mid-off? And uh, Raymond would say, he passed me and say, keep going, <laughs> keep going. And eventually he gets so mad, he'd take it out on the batsman, you see, he start bowling fast. And uh, it was just a ploy, but <laughs> obviously <laughs> he came back when he went and bowled fast at me at home and broke me hand. He got his own back. What a fascinating anecdote, though, that, that tells you about the wisdom of and the man management and the understanding of human nature of railing left, doesn't it? Well, he did. And, and actually, if you read, I can't remember the test now, you're reading the book, John may recall it, but um, Raymond told the selectors he wanted him dropping on a test match. Wow. And uh, he said, look, I'll ask him to bowl fast and he bowls fast medium. That's not good enough. And so that he didn't get all the flack that, oh, he'd been dropped like bloody Doug Insole dropped me and Barrington. He said, right, best thing we could do, they agreed. They bring in Alan Ward for his first test. A young kid who bowled fast at Derby should want to see it. We want to see how he is and we'll rest John, say that. And I will ring John up personally and tell him why he's not playing. And Raymond rang him up. The media got the story. They were resting him, playing Alan Ward. There were no fuss about it, but John got the message. When Raymond said, I want you to bowl fast and I will not over-bowl you. I will bowl you short, sharp, fast. Trust me. Then they got a relationship going. Maybe some of the younger listeners won't remember that you scored 240, was it not, against India in... 1967. Don't forget the six. 246 not out. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And we won the match. Yeah. 
that's the key. We won the match easy. And I and that dug in soul should have spelt his name with a A, dropped me. Yeah, he was the chairman of selectors, in case anybody doesn't know. Yeah, well, I can't I can't say the word here about him. He did bad for me the rest of my life. He scarred me for the rest of my life with that. And he never the one thing I never forgive him for is he never told me beforehand what he wanted. He never spoke to me afterwards about what he'd done and why. He just talked to the media. That was poor man management, dreadful man management. But I think I think the, 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 the passage in the book that describes that, the, the first part of that innings, um, where Jeffrey was hugely out of form, and he, he was brilliant when he spoke about that and wrote about that, because it was that thing, either every amateur player knows... Yeah, you, you can't seem to score a run. You can't hit the ball off the square. Uh, but the guy at the other end gets all the half volleys. He gets all the short balls. And I think that, you know, the start of that innings where that, that was what was happening. I think Jeffrey described that brilliantly when he, when he, and then the second day, all of a sudden you're tying it, you're hitting it well. And I think he will tell you he got 100, was it 146 or something like that was on the second morning. I got 240 spotty in about, Three hours that we declared we won the yeah. game, didn't follow on. But yeah. you know, you've got a hundred, you've relaxed, haven't you? All that tension's gone. You that was the year when I got picked for that match. I got my only pair against Norman Graham at Bradford. Never led bat on ball, it reared out my head, it gloved me one, hit the gloves and dropped on the wicket another. And I got out twice, never got bloody ball on bat. And I got another knot after that, or three knots in succession. I was in terrible form. In fact, I didn't expect to get picked, except the first test was at Headingley, my home ground. I think it being anywhere else, I might not have got picked because I was in terrible form. I'd like to ask you both about, this is one bit where your collaboration worked exceptionally well, I thought, was just describing that fantastic over that Michael Holding bowled at Jeffrey in Bridgetown in, in 1981. really gets... a it's a it's a great over anyway uh, in anybody's account, but somehow the two of you uh, looking at it together and recalling it together or reconstructing it together gave it an extra dimension. Um, Jeffrey, going going back to that over, do you think that Michael Holding produced something absolutely extra special for you, or do you just think he was in the zone and bowled a, a wonderful over and he'd have bowled it at anybody? I just think when you if you think about fast bowling. Bowling at over 90 miles an hour, running in and trying to get the line right around off stump, the length right, not too full, not too short. It is very difficult. You watch what Jimmy Anderson, wonderful bowler, can bowl it in, out, whatever. You. you watch him, his first ball, first over of a test match. It's bloody difficult to get the ball in the right area because it swings, it does things, but you're raw, you know, you're bowling your first time and he got everything absolutely right. If you watch those balls, they're not too short. They're around off stump. And in fact, what people don't realize is he's six foot four, I think, Michael, six, three or six, four. Andy Roberts, his partner at the time was five foot 10. And he was so worried about his run-up from the previous te test in Trinidad, he asked Andy if Andy could mark his run-up for him. 
Now that's ridiculous because it's different length of stride if you're six foot three or four to five foot ten. And Andy just encouraged him to mark his run and running, and everything came perfectly right. And he just bowled. And the one thing about Michael is all the time, I faced him other times as well, is although he bowled the quickest I've ever faced, he always gave me the impression, always, that he was bowling within himself. And that if he really wanted, there was another gear there to go up. Now, that is a little scary because you look at someone like, is it Matt Wood from Durham, our, one of our first bowlers? Yep. Matt's a lovely lad. He gives you everything. You see him, he's throwing his body in, and you can see his body straining every ball. And that's why he tends to get injured. Michael, it was fluid. It was easy. Well, it looked easy. And it, it just came out perfectly for him. And I said to him afterwards, Michael, well bowled. I made you look great. <laughs> it, it, it was a great collective moment for the, for the two of you, even though you were the victim of it. Jeffrey, there's one um, thing I'd like to ask you personal, you know, from a personal point of view, one and one thing that's described in the book. You switched to um, contact lenses, I think, in 1969. Um, yep. I switched. I switched contact lenses. Of, around the same time, and uh, I can tell you it didn't have the same effect on my cricket career as, as they, they did on yours, but um, cr contact lenses were really hard to wear in those days, much, or much, certainly much harder than those days. Was it, was it hard for you to, to adjust? Um, yes, or... it was difficult. It, it, it was. Yeah, it was, and it, it came about by chance. Look, I wore glasses when I was about 17, 18. I was in tears. It, it finished my... Uh, uh, career in football. I love football. I played left half for Leeds United under 18s. Well, once you had to wear glasses, I couldn't play football for Leeds. <laughs> glasses. They didn't have contact lenses then. Mm -hmm. So I, I even thought my cricket career was finished. But my uncle dressed me down and told me to write to Mike Smith of Warwickshire, who was one of the few players who played in glasses. Very much so. Yeah, he was a double international. And all. He played for England Rugby Union. Lovely man. And... Uh, and so I carried on with cricket, but I carried on with cricket until I, until 68. I was, what, 28 years of age. And then um, a lady and her husband were watching the test match in Barbados called Watson, Hilda Watson and her husband. And they had opticians in around the Manchester Northwest area called Watsons, but they'd started on contact lenses just a few years before and used the middle name, uh, Kelvin, and she said to her husband, why is uh, that young man not wearing contact lenses? She said, I don't know. So she wrote to me, and when I got home from the West Indies 268, there was a letter by Hilda Watson saying, contact lenses, we have some, why don't you come and try them? So I waited till the end of the summer, and then I went to see them, see what it was all about, because I hated glasses. I can't, there's not much in my life I really hated and I mean, really hate it was glasses. I hated the so-and-sos. All my life, I hated them. But, and so I tried contact lenses. And yet, uh, interestingly, we, we've spoken to Zahir Abbas quite a few times, and Zahir um, couldn't get on with contact lenses at all when he tried to switch them. And he stayed with the same pair of, tried to stay with the same pair of glasses all his career. 
Mm. Um, yeah, he was a fine player. No, he was a top player. Yeah, and he's will have the record, I think, for all time as the man who scored more runs in more first class runs in glasses than anybody else. Right. Um, yeah, John, you had to sort of come to Jeffrey. You weren't just writing about Jeffrey as a um, uh, as a cricketer, great though he was. You also had to sort of wrestle with Jeffrey as a sort of as an icon, as a um, figure in the in the national culture. Did that make your task a little harder in sort of penetrating his personality and in being Jeffrey Boycott? Well, yeah, I mean, I sort of got an example of it the first time we met, actually, as, as Jeffrey said, we'd spoken a few times about the concept of the book and so on, and we're trying to work out whether or not we could do it. And it was the uh, the first, uh, actually, the second test of the summer that England were playing India, so two years ago, the summer they went home from the Oval, um, whatever summer that was. Uh, England versus India at Lords. He said, come and meet me by the museum at two o'clock on the first day because um, we were both at the both at the game so I went around there to the museum and people do people know Lords the museum is immediately behind the pavilion so there's this sort of thoroughfare that is quite well used um, and I went and stood outside the museum and Jeffrey came round with Rachel and we were going to have this chat about the about the book for you know work out whether or not we could do it and it was impossible because we stood there for about 40 minutes and I spent 40 minutes talking to Rachel because people were coming up to him constantly and I mean I, I was even I was I mean I obviously realized he's a famous cricketer and he's at a cricket ground but people would would just walk up to him without any introduction touch him on the shoulder or whatever and say you know 1965 uh, Worcester I remember you doing this and, and it was just you could see I mean it, it, you know apart from the fact it was, uh, must be slightly annoying if it's happening to you it, you could see how much he meant to people and how much, you know, how much he, their contact, whatever it was in their life with him, how much that had meant to them, that they wanted to tell him about it. But you could also see what it was like to be Jeffrey Boycott. I mean, it, you know, he was famous in a time in the 1970s and 1980s when fame was quite a different thing. I mean, you can talk about it being based on achievement rather than just, you know, notoriety, which is probably one conversation. But also because there was no social media and we just had the, the traditional press and cricket, what, unless it was test cricket, wasn't always available to people to watch unless they went to the grounds. There were far fewer famous people in the culture and sport was in a different place in the culture to where it is now. Whereas, you know, um, there were probably three or four sportsmen in the country. You probably say George Best, you say Brian Clough, Jeffrey Boycott maybe a couple of others who were famous beyond their sports and would appear on the front pages of the newspapers uh, and would appear on the Michael Parkinson show, which is probably the, you know, the, 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 the real, uh, you know, high point of fame in that time to be on TV on a talk show. So fame was different, but he was famous in that time and he's famous in the social media time. And his has been a kind of public life in a way. And so I kind of had to try and drill into what that might be like but that day at the test match was actually quite an interesting insight into what it was like to be here and i think that uh, and this is one of the things your book really explores is that reason why reason for that fame was not just that jeffrey was a great batsman it was also the craftsmanship the attention to detail it mattered so much to him he worked his personal struggle, we were all part of that. 
and you and you know the fallings out and the mm. and the integrity of Jeffrey's journey. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, there's definitely yeah. that. I mean, you know, he's he's everything is rooted in Yorkshire and everything is rooted in where he comes from. And Yorkshire means as much to him. I don't want to speak for him, but meant as much to him as playing for England did. And you know, I think there was the element of him being a lonely figure. That famous quote from mm. John Arlott, "You'll have a lonely career." Um, being an opening batsman, that's the most kind of existential job in cricket. Yeah. Um, and the fact that I think, you know, he was a figure that stood apart. And I think people, and he was a polarising figure because he'll always tell you what he thinks. And I think there was this kind of love-hate relationship which which the newspapers would have with him, which the public would have with him, the great Yorkshire uprisings. You know, there's probably only, and he may disagree with this, only Kevin Peterson of... England cricketers of the love, you know, since the war, who have provoked that level of feeling, who people are prepared to rise up for. You know, this happened at Yorkshire where there was a great kind of public uprising support for him um, because he was of them and he was from them. And there's a bit in the book where, I, where I, it's my bit of writing, but it comes from Geoffrey, um, where it talks about him being a son of Yorkshire and people remember that he, what the village he comes from. They remember his father was a miner. You know, they remember that he's always put Yorkshire above everything else. And that's where that sort of feeling comes from. And I thought that was really important to, to kind of try and get that in there somehow as well. Jeffrey, are we, we're talking about you. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, I understand a lot more about myself now. I didn't at the time, I just played cricket. But when I look back on my career life, I think... To be honest, I loved Yorkshire cricket too much. That's a hell of a thing to say. But I think I did. I grew up as a kid. Everybody talked about Yorkshire winning the championship. And what people forget then, for a long time, until, what, 92, you had to be born in Yorkshire to play for Yorkshire. We didn't have overseas players. And so everybody talked about that. It was so important to Yorkshire cricket, to the people. You were born in Yorkshire, or one of them. And you knew all about that as a kid growing up. When you went to the Nets, to the Yorkshire Nets, it was always talked about. We're all as one and we have to win. And I think throughout my England career, everything, I did love Yorkshire too much. And it's probably been to my downfall um, with some of the troubles and problems. Sometimes I didn't play for England and so forth. Yes, I did. But the one thing why people supported me, the members, the supporters, is because they loved my batting. They loved what I gave, which was everything. The passion. I had talent. I had a technique. But I made hundreds for them. I made lots of runs for Yorkshire. Uh, I remember Tim Rice was once talking to my wife. And he said, Jeffrey's given me a lot of pleasure. And Rachel said, me too. <laughs> and he, he told me that. Tim told me that. He thought it was hilarious. And I think, you know, yeah, I, I don't think I could say much else. But I'll come back to what I said at the beginning. The one thing above all is passion. If you have something in your life, whatever it is, mine was cricket. You have passion. You're blessed. 
because many people, they do a job of work, they have to go and earn some money, but they're not in love with it. Um, their life, they're not sure what to do. I feel sad for them, not sorry, sad. Because if you can find something where you really do have that feeling of passion that from being nine, I used to get up and want to go to Johnny Lawrence's greenhouse, it was, to practice cricket with some rubber nets down and it was freezing cold, chucking down with rain, snowing in January, February. But that Saturday morning, hugging my cricket stuff, getting two buses, walking best part of a mile to a greenhouse where it was freezing your, what you call it, stuff, when you changed your white. But I loved it. It was the best time of my life. And from going there at nine or 10, to every day I played cricket, I still had that passion as a boy. And I was lucky from that point of view. Many other things happened in my life that were sad and incidents. And I look back and maybe I wish I could have changed. And now I'm older, wiser, maybe I would have done things differently, yes. But that would never change because I had that passion. And I still have it today when I write about it, when I commentated about it. I still have it when I watch. I can watch every ball of every test match and enjoy it. It's still a thrill. Thank you. Do you know what, you, what you've just said? It rather reminds me of the famous words when he was asked to recant by Martin Luther. Here I stand, I can do no other. And there is that sort of adamantine statement you're making about how you've lived your life. Geoffrey and John, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, and a real privilege to have you on our 100th edition, a fitting celebration of that, uh, of that event. It's a wonderful book uh, that you've produced together, Being Geoffrey Boycott. There's a very generous offer from your publisher to our listeners uh, of uh, copies, uh, special terms, your publisher, Fairfield Books, which uh, we'll put in the, the link to this podcast. Uh, so the book makes us hope there might be a sequel for second innings but for now thank you both very very much for joining us thank you thank you very much thank you thank you Geoffrey and John absolute privilege to talk to you both your book really is a masterpiece I think it's astonishing piece of work it's goodbye from me Peter Oborn in an overcast Wiltshire the opening bolo it will swing and it will seem this morning here <laughs> It's uh, goodbye from me, Richard Heller, in um, in South East London, where a bowler of any pace would want a bowl with sun behind him because it's still glaring and glaring into my eyes. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.